When uh, Siddhartha Gautama was, I think, 30 years old, uh, he made a decision to... Really, he made a decision to explore the possibility of great fulfillment and simultaneously less suffering in his own life. And he he was very committed. There's a lot of evidence of that in um, in the stories about his life. And what took place was a a six-year period of intensive meditation practice. And I think it's probably true that he set out to learn the techniques that were readily available in that part of uh, India at the time, practices that we would probably still today put under the umbrella of yoga. And as most of the stories go, he was, he was a quick learner, and he was able to learn the techniques, and he had access to good teachers at the time, and <clears throat> some of those teachers asked him to teach, you know, very, very quickly. And, uh, and and some of them tempted him. You know, said, well, we'll, you know, we'll give you a nice place to stay. And uh, there'll be a lot of food. Or, you know, who knows? They, you know, he was sort of recruited in, in, in some sense. And he kept saying no, uh, that he mostly wanted to practice. And... What he was saying was that he hadn't learned enough yet. That he had learned some things. He had learned enough to teach, as far as the stories that, uh, indicate. And <clears throat> he wasn't personally satisfied. And he, he noticed something uh, incredibly important, which was that while he was learning the meditation techniques fairly well, and he was beginning to experience, uh, I would imagine, uh, less suffering while he was practicing, and probably some really elevated uh, mind states, you know, maybe maybe bliss, maybe a lot of happiness. And it's fair to assume that he was getting good at developing concentration. Uh, most of the practices at that time uh, probably would fall under the umbrella of concentration. So what the Buddha was likely learning how to do <coughs> was take an object like breath or sensation, you know, these were, or sound, like how we were practicing tonight, and, and he was able to take his attention, place it at that aspect of experience, and keep it there, and, 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 and probably develop uh, this capacity so it got stronger and stronger and stronger so of course like all of us uh, his mind would wander and he'd bring it back and wander bring it back and what happens over the long term of practice is this this wandering <laughs> starts to slow down right so when we're at the beginning we're practicing and it's like this right the mind just keeps like if this is the anchor that we're trying to pay attention to the mind just and a lot of the time the mind get like and we're thinking about you know we started thinking about dinner and we don't even know how it happened but now we're thinking about what our life will be like when we're 20 years older than we are now and we don't even know how long like maybe that was 
a minute and 30 seconds. Maybe it was 13 minutes and we kind of lose track. We're just, mindfulness is not very strong. And then we come back. And then over time, you know, we can, we, we can, we can hold our attention on the, on, on the object. And I use the word object and anchor synonymously. There's an object, which is what we're paying attention to. And we anchor our mind there on that experience. What, the, what, what Siddhartha Gautama noticed was that there were a lot of pleasurable experiences during formal practice, but outside of formal practice, like for example, when he was waiting for a latte at Starbucks, <laughs> he was suffering. You know, and he wasn't, he wasn't free of the normal constraints of a mind that wasn't fully trained, right? So, you know, in a sense, he knew that he didn't have wisdom, which, is a, which, is a, which in and of itself is a profound wisdom, right? That, that level of clarity and humility um, allowed him to do arguably something that none of the teachers before him had done, which is to not be satisfied with impressive, blissful states if there was still suffering in the mind, if there was still distress, Mm -hmm. dis-ease, anxiety, whatever it might be. And I imagine that he was curious about another possibility, a bigger possibility. And he had worked his way through, arguably, uh, many of the good teachers and so he really had to do his own he really had to do his own thing and my understanding is that from a deeper commitment to solitary practice for him in the forest and a, a very strong and relentless drive to understand his own mind uh, he accomplished something that I mean maybe maybe it had been accomplished before but certainly it hadn't uh, it hadn't been articulated the way he was eventually able to to do. Uh, I don't actually believe he did something unique to Buddhism. I did. I think he discovered something available to the mind, and uh, was a gifted teacher and was able to articulate it in a way that got systematized. And now we have we have Buddhism. But it's said that he woke up, and. He, 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 you know, he was sort of challenged and asked, like, you know, like, who, who can vouch for you? You know, who can, who can vouch that this is true? And he, he put his hand on the earth as if to indicate that, you know, the earth is my witness. And there's, there's something about that. There's something about penetrating insight and the clarity and profundity of it uh, that we don't need others to let us know, right? There's, there's times and places where the mind sees something so clearly that what is washed away by the insight itself is doubt, okay? And, you know, you know Buddha, Buddha means awake. So, so really Siddhartha Gautama's name was awake, awakened one. So this, this possibility of waking up is one of the core aims of this tradition. I, I, you know, 
Many people would say it is the aim. Uh, you know, there's also the development of compassion. There's the development of kindness, uh, the cultivation of mudita, joy, the capacity to experience directly within oneself a high level of, of joy, happiness for, for someone else's well-being. So this quality of joy is absent greed. The heart is very open and generous in, in, in a sense. As part of this awakening, the Buddha gave us a, a core teaching, which I'm imagining most or all of you have heard, and, and some of you have heard uh, many, many, many times. And that's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are one, uh, Dukkha in Pali. Uh, Dukkha can be translated as distress, suffering, dissatisfaction, dis-ease, unsatisfactoriness. Uh, I like unsatisfactoriness. Uh, basic underlying sense that things could be different, better, things aren't quite they're not, things aren't quite how I want them to be. Have you noticed that feeling? <laughs> or worse, there's real pain, mental or physical pain in my own experience, in my own life. So, so dukkha, it's not like I have it and you don't today and maybe tomorrow you don't but you do. Dukkha is more of this human socio-cultural reality of having a mind and body, living in the world with other minds and bodies, and all of the challenges and stress that is contained within that. So this is a, a, a raw, honest truth. The Buddha was a realist. He wasn't in the business of repression. And he just saw it really clearly. This dukkha is a part of life. It's not, as you sometimes see, life is suffering. Right? It's, it's not this blanket statement like, you know, life is this horrible thing that we need to put an end to. Now, there are times for some people, um, probably some people in this room, there are times for many people drawn to Buddhism where that possibly was considered an option to the end of significant suffering. Like, let's just end this life. <clears throat> but there's another dimension Right. So the, the truth is that life has this uh, inherent dukkha within it. But there's a reason for that. There's uh, a way in which we are caught up invariably in an unskillful relationship with our own mind. And the product of that is something called tanha, T-A-N-H-A, which is uh, craving, literally translates as thirst. And so there's a way in which this craving has us perpetually moving away from the present, pre present moment. We're, we're moving towards something. We're fixated on something. Ultimately, uh, you could say that we're fixated on alleviating dukkha. We're trying to wriggle away from it. Or uh, some people identify more with the idea that we're trying to move toward happiness. 
in both cases, there's this this tanha is playing out. <clears throat> the third noble truth is cessation, which is that this experience of dukkha can be alleviated. It can go away. We can we can stop. We can we can create the conditions for the stopping of dukkha, for the ending of dukkha. So that's the third noble truth. And the four, which I would assume was part of the Buddha's awakening experience. Does that make sense? That that, that, that experience that we try to talk about when we talk about awakening uh, included some kind of cessation. And the fourth noble truth is the path, the, the truth of a way to accomplish the cessation of dukkha. And that's this Buddhist path of mental training, and I like to say heart training. So we're cultivating wisdom and kindness as foundation to, to create the conditions for awakening to happen. The Four Noble Truths, I don't think, are that useful um, if we take them as fact because the Buddha said they were true or the books that we read say they're true and the teachers who sit at the front um, say they are True. The, what, the, what, what I understand the Buddha was advocating for was personal investigation, personal exploration, to develop an incredibly discerning mind, which is mindfulness, which can investigate experience directly and see for ourselves what's really happening, what's really happening. And this is, I think, why some teachers, and I'm thinking about Stephen Batchelor, who I often will refer to challenges this language of four noble truths. Noble and true <clears throat> sounds like the Buddha had it right and all the other religious teachers didn't. We, could re- we can read it that way. right? There's a nobility to the Buddha's truth, so it's probably more true than other teachers' truths. They all have truths. <clears throat> So this language might even incline us to just, okay, yeah, sounds good. Dukkha makes sense. I don't know about the tanha thing. That's a little ambiguous. It's hard to get a sense of. But cessation sounds good. I want that. I want the alleviation of suffering. And so in the cessation discussion, we start to, talk, we start to hear words like nibbana or enlightenment. You know, Some of us want that. Some of us just want less back pain. Some of us just want less mental illness. And so there's this whole range of how, how we can identify with cessation. But Stephen Batchelor says, let's not take these as truths. We might find out that they're true, actually. Uh, but he changes the language and he, and he says, let's call these the four tasks. Actually, in this this translation comes from from the suttas. These are uh, 
Stephen Batchelor reminds us these are tasks to be explored very experientially and to be understood personally. Okay? This is part of that path toward awakening. So there's there's a task for every for every let every every truth, every every each of the four noble truths. So the first task is to experience dukkha, to know it. To know it not as a not as a theological principle, not as a theory, right? Actually, I think the value of the four noble truths at the beginning of our experience with meditation is that it suggests the possibility of change, and that can motivate and inspire. But from that place of aspiration, we really have to do the practice. <clears throat> and so at the beginning, we're just asked to notice dukkha. Can you find it? Can you experience this dis-ease, right? Right? And of course, this, this dukkha that is being described by the teachings is not the pain from when you stub your foot. It's not even the systemic pain of a chronic illness in the body. It's not the disappointment at the loss of a relationship or the death of a loved one. Okay? All of that... Uh, for sake of conversation, that's pain. That's inevitable pain that is a part of life. Dukkha is a result of how we relate to life's pain. So the Buddha wasn't saying we can get rid of dukkha. The Buddha wasn't saying we can get rid of pain. The Buddha was saying we can get rid of dukkha. We can change how we relate to everything, pleasant and unpleasant. And that will basically, that's a game changer. That's what the Buddha was saying. But we, but there's, it's almost there's a process we have to go through. And he says, task number one, experience this dukkha, know it. Okay. Does that make sense? The second task is to comprehend tanha, and this this is going to take time. This is going to take some study. It's going to take some conversation. It's going to take a lot of meditation. What is this craving? Literal translation is thirst. How does thirst create suffering? That's a, that's a question worth holding. How does, how does craving? What is unquenched within you that creates suffering? The third task is to experience cessation. To be free, to have uh, moments where you can have a non-dukkha perspective on your own human experience. And the fourth task is to cultivate the path, to cultivate um, the tools and strategies for accomplishing this. So this this takes effort. It takes time. Right, even just coming here. Uh, you had to make a decision not to do something else. Then you had to get here. You had to use some resources for that. Right? There are people that don't have access to you now because you're focused on your, your practice. A lot of decisions, a lot of effort. And then you do all of that, and then you sit down and realize, well, there's, still, there's a lot of work to do because I have to... Well, we don't know where the mind is. We point to our head. Actually, 
many cultures would point to the could would point here, but now we have to work with the mind. We have to work with the mind. We have to work with the heart. We have to work with our body. So there's this cultivation, this impali bhavana, the persistent and continuous effort. <clears throat> and so over time we start to wake up. And maybe, maybe, and I, I'm, uh, I'm willing to say that there are some experiences along this path of uh, cultivation where there are some remarkable insights that, that, that happen unexpectedly and the, the mind is reformed in a way that allows it to see differently. Very, very distinct kinds of insights where, you know, it's like, and, and now we have new glasses on. Right? And we may or may not have those kinds of really big, big insights. But what I want to suggest is that this awakening can be recognized in the gradual cultivation that is, if we want it, available all the time. You know, sitting down at home and doing practice, coming in here on Thursday nights, coming to week retreats on the weekends, sitting on other nights if you're connected with other communities, right? There's, there's an awakening that is possible, maybe already happening, but we have to learn how to notice it. We have to learn how to notice cessation. We are good at noticing, we get good at noticing dukkha. We're actually, we're not, we're not that great at, at noticing dukkha at the beginning. It's very, very subtle. Even if, even if some mental or physical pain brings us to the practice, we don't quite yet know this dukkha. We know pain. Right? So let's, I want to try to talk a little bit about awakening. Um, So let's look at the word as a noun, awakening. So let's think about what it means. And I want to share with you some, some very simple definitions that I think can be used to shed light on the Four Noble Truths, this idea of cessationing, this idea of cessation, right? So awakening, an act of becoming suddenly aware of something. An act of becoming suddenly aware of something. There have been a a few opportunities, uh, more than a few, but a few that stand out over many years of practice where <clears throat> I'm thinking particularly about uh, relationship. Couple instances where I have grown increasingly aware of some aspect of my self in relationship, like let's just say frustration, right? 
So I start to pay attention to it at a certain level. Like, you know, geez, I get frustrated a lot. That's interesting, right? And let's say I'm noticing that that is happening in the context of several different kinds of relationships. So I'm thinking, geez, I've got some dysfunctional relationships in my life. So I'm, I'm, you know, or I've got some toxic relationships. And so I keep paying attention to my frustration. And, you know, maybe I decide that I've got some really unskillful people in my life that are doing, um, you know, that are careless or unkind or, um, you know, maybe they, maybe they need to do some cultivation and I won't be so frustrated with them when we come together and try to work together. And then, you know, like a light bulb just goes off in the middle, middle of a conversation and my frustration is really high and the mind just connects the dots. Just like that says, oh, this feeling I'm having underneath the frustration is being misunderstood. One, two, three, four, five, six people in my life in relationship to them. I don't feel understood. And I'm for, I don't. So now it's like, oh, this is about me. This is about me. Right? changes all of those relationships going forward because now I'm taking a different kind of responsibility for my, uh, my emotional experience. It changes how I see those other people. Maybe they're not doing anything unskillful at all. Maybe there's a very typical normal human, act, human interaction happening and there's some part of me that under certain conditions feels misunderstood, frustrated, and then there's the external blame, which in whenever there's ex- now with external blame, I'm not able to look at my I'm, at that point. I'm not looking at myself. I'm not doing the contemplative work. I'm not cultivating insight. And this can happen. This can happen very quickly. You can just like, you know, and it could be. I mean, it might take 16 years of having frustrating conversation, and you just see it, right? And you can you can come up with your own. That's just one example. You know, or maybe just suddenly, just suddenly seeing dukkha, like really getting, like really getting it for the first time. I can, I can remember, I can remember, I was doing walking meditation between the library and the dining hall at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. I had done many retreats already. And um, I had done many retreats. And I had a lot of physical pain. It's really, in a sense, that was all I was aware. It was a 30-day retreat. (coughs) I was about three weeks into it. And mostly I was just aware of physical pain. And I was doing this walk. I was doing walking meditation. It was in the afternoon. And the mind... The mind, there was a moment where the mind just, it, it like, it's, it's like the mind stepped back far enough to see that not only was there physical pain, but the mind had contracted and was so tight. I had been, the, the, the pain had been for, for like the whole retreat, like three weeks. And 
there was no part of me that was open or curious in response to that physical pain. But what I, and the mind just kept getting tighter, the aversion, the resistance, the hatred of the pain had built and built. And, and of course, what's happening is the pain in the body is getting worse. Right? That's the nature of aversion or resistance is that contraction contract you know we, we would think that once we're contracted we're done the contraction can be almost never ending and just get the body might get tighter and tighter and tighter and now dukkha is this is you know really proliferating and i just saw in the most simplest of terms dukkha i just saw the suffering the dukkha and i just said i, I just Dukkha, and I just—it's like I am like for the first time in three weeks, I just let myself feel the full weight of my mental and physical pain, and I started to cry a little bit, and the whole body softened. All of the resistance went away. I just met the resistance. I met this profound and painful dukkha, completely open, and, and the whole body softened. And all the mental tension went just drained out of me, right? So just I, in that moment, just saw the first noble truth, right? In a little touch of cessation, that's that wasn't nibbana. I didn't go to nirvana, and I'm not going to walk through this wall at the end of the night. But I, but there was there was relief, a profound actually profound relief. Oh, okay, awakening, an act of waking from sleep. So, of course, the whole tradition uses this kind of imagery. We are in the dark. Without the full manifestation of wisdom, we're in the dark. We're asleep. We're not seeing clearly. So this idea of, this, this idea of, of waking up is coming out of the dark. We can see more clearly, right? We can see more detail, right? Go into a dark room and turn on a light. Oh, now you can see the contours of shape and color and texture. You can, you can see more clearly. Mindfulness is about seeing things we've never seen before. That's what mindfulness is, seeing things you've never seen before. Awakening is the beginning or rousing of something. The beginning or rousing of something. <clears throat> the beginning of the cultivation of cessation. The rousing of a very useful kind of doubt which questions all, all many if not all of the assumptions you hold about yourself, your mind, how the mind works. You start to be suspicious of your own strongly held views. You start to investigate them. Some of your strongly held views totally match reality and they're very useful for you and the people around you and should be maintained. Many of them are not. This is what we find out in our practice. The fourth definition of awakening, coming into existence or awareness, coming into existence or awareness. So becoming more, becoming more aware. 
awaken as a verb to cause to stop sleeping, to cause to so. As we start to awaken or as we have an insight, this insight itself creates the conditions to stop sleeping. Now we start to orient our actions in body, speech, and mind in a way that are aligned with wisdom, kindness, and generosity. Before we set off in this trajectory, many of our habitual behaviors in body, speech, and mind originated from greed, hatred, and delusion. But something's changing. We can almost, at a certain point in the practice, start to feel the inertia of generosity, kindness, and wisdom. It's behind us. Actually, I want to say that differently. In my own experience, I felt that there were these moments or pockets of time. Maybe even was just a moment on a Thursday afternoon when, when uh, kindness, wisdom, and generosity were the, were the, were the predominant force. Right? So you get these pockets. Where, oh, there's a really, there's a very wholesome, skillful force supporting me. Behind, you know, <clears throat> I'm less reactive and more creatively responsive in a way that's creating harmony within myself and my environment. And then those moments get closer and closer together until, you know, we, there's, there, there, we kind of feel that there are, they become guiding forces, guiding principles. Doesn't mean we don't get stuck in greed, hatred, and delusion. But the norm can switch to these more wholesome mind states. And then there's only two definitions for awaken. To make someone aware of something for the first time. To make something... Uh, to make someone aware of something for the first time. And the Buddhist story is a great example of that. You know, had this profound moment, and saw, arguably, we get in, you know, sort of get a little academic here. Arguably, saw the whole recipe for dukkha and the whole recipe for its alleviation. It's a brilliant moment of insight and from which we have this you know, comprehensive tradition of uh, mind training. Ultimately, to see if we can replicate uh, what purportedly the Buddha did and was able to see. So <clears throat> one, of the, one of the dilemmas that often comes up in, in meditation circles is whether awakening is a one-time thing that happens and happens big and may or may not happen to you, or whether it's a gradual culmination of little insights, little, so little you, you question how useful they're going to be. My sense is that both are possible, that, 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 there are, these, there are these culminating insights that build and build and build and build. 
and then there there are some pretty there are some sometimes there are fireworks and the mind really sees something clearly in a way that's that's substantively helpful however we may, we may or may not have those kinds of experiences but there's still this gradual I was going to say accumulation. We have to be careful about using words like accumulation in this tradition. But but nonetheless, it's a sort of accumulation of knowledge uh, that can be put to good put to good use. And then a, a, another dilemma that you'll you'll hear and probably find yourself caught up in sometimes is you know is awakening far away, some distant possibility, or is it right around the corner? You know. So there are. You know, for example, like the Buddha said, well, you, if, you, if you practice diligently, you can wake up in seven years. Seven, no, what did he say? Seven lifetimes? The Dalai Lama says to check in on your practice once a decade. Once a decade. <laughs> and then somebody haggled the... I'd have, I'd have to look the sutta up, but somebody haggled the, the Buddha and said, like, you know, come on, man, that's a long time. <laughs> And he said, well, okay, well, if you practice really di- diligently, maybe seven years. And some people have, so well, maybe seven months. And eventually, he, he kept, he, you know, was engaging. And, you know, he said, okay, well, for some of you, maybe seven days. Just keep practicing. So, we, you know, we don't know. And I, and I think um, the, the Buddha was great at giving enough variation and I think he was basically just trying to convince everybody to meditate. You know, he actually, I, I, my sense is he had so much faith uh, that he really would actually change his answers if he could relate to someone in a way that uh, encouraged their aspiration. I think he had so much faith in the practice. But we don't know. You know, we don't know if <coughs> we're going to, we don't know exactly what waking up is. And we don't know when it's going to happen. And maybe it's going to happen in seven lifetimes. And maybe it's going to happen, you know, as your right foot moves toward the threshold of the subway car going home. Maybe there's, or maybe there is a critical insight. Uh, We don't know. But I do believe all of the work, moment to moment, of practicing meditation is setting up the conditions for something to happen. I, I believe that. And you may have heard me say this before. Every moment of mindfulness, one moment, is a moment when the, when the underlying causes of greed, hatred, and delusion were eliminated. Completely eliminated. Not a little bit. Not greed and hatred were eliminated, but delusion was still there. It doesn't work that way. Every moment of mindfulness, the underlying conditions of greed, hatred, and delusion were completely eliminated. In your own mind's capacity to orient toward present moment experience in that way is getting stronger. And there's a cumulative effect of that. And that will show up to benefit us most likely when we least expect it. 